All right, how's everybody doing today? Welcome to Riverview. My name is James. I want to start by asking this question. What is the most memorable or maybe your favorite place that you've ever had a chance to visit? Now, you can't say Lansing in mid-January, okay? Um, obviously, that's going to be number one for everybody. Um, but I bet we, if we just had a bunch of people in this room that kind of popped up uh, on the stage and share about the best places, they've, they, collectively we'd have an amazing story to tell, right? Um, God has given us an incredible world. Um, in May, I had the opportunity to visit the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and this is the fourth time I have been there. Um, it's located near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And with all that's gone on in Israel, honestly, in the last few months, it was actually more than a bit troubling as I was thinking about um, this sermon, just to go back there when, in my mind, when things were, were so peaceful and so different. It was just like six, seven months ago that we were there, and several folks from Riverview, kind of that, that, that trip that we did, are here today even that were with me. Um, but that's one of the most memorable places, if not maybe the most memorable place I've ever visited it's located at the foot of the Mount of Olives, um, which rises sort of to the east of Jerusalem above the Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives is exactly what it says it is. It's a mountain covered with olive trees, um, many of which are hundreds of years old. The place just kind of feels uh, nostalgic and historic, even as you're just there. Um, this is a video that I took in Gethsemane uh, when we were there in May, a very beautiful and peaceful place. Uh, we knew the caretaker, and so uh, we had our own little private spot there um, that we just spent some time worshiping and praying and studying God's word. It was really uh, a pretty incredible thing. Gethsemane is the Hebrew word for oil press. It's, it's this device that's used for turning olives into olive oil. They've actually found a number of caves in Gethsemane uh, where olives were pressed into oil in the ancient world. Um, the oil in, for the life of folks in that time, uh, in the first century, was an incredibly important um, resource in the life of the Jews. Think about the different uses of olive oil um, in the ancient Middle East. They used it for cooking, uh, for light. It was the oil that they used in their lamps uh, for medicine. Olive oil has medicinal properties. They used it for food. Um, when we were there on many of our meals, we dipped bread in olive oil. Uh, when we were there in Israel, olive oil was also used for anointing uh, for priests, uh, for the tabernacle, for holy places. Olive oil symbolized life. And to run out of oil was a crisis. The overflow of oil um, was a sign of God's blessing and presence. Now, the process of turning olives into olive oil has obviously been modernized over the years. In the ancient times, it was essentially a two-part process. Once the olives were plucked from the trees, they were then placed in a giant stone bowl like this one. Okay, and you see this heavy stone that rolls over the top. An animal would be attached to the other end of this and just kind of walk in circles and crush 
That's the first part of the process, is this crushing of the olives between the stones. And there's actually on the other side here, there's a spigot, and the first little droplets of oil that come out on that side are drained. And then the crushed olives are placed in these big baskets that are porous. They have uh, sort of the, um, in the sides, a basket is down in here underneath this little guy. And this is kind of like a torture chamber for olives, basically. That they have this crank system that they use and the, the, the basket, so it's crushed first and then pressed over and over again. And the oil, again, you can see is captured, the bottles down here and, and, and it would drain out on that side. Now, why are we talking about Gethsemane and olive presses and olive oil? Well, let's uh, take our journey back to Corinth here where we are going to be for the next six months in our series called Cruciform. Um, as we walk through the book of 2 Corinthians, one of the major themes is going to be suffering and affliction. As Pastor Noel introduced the series last week, he defined this idea of the cruciformed life. And he said, we who follow Jesus are able to comfort anyone facing any kind of affliction when we are comforted by Jesus for suffering affliction because we follow him. And so the idea here is that in God's hands, affliction has purpose. And, and now this is where your, your journal notes, if you have a journal from last weekend, maybe you wrote this down. Does anyone remember the Greek word, Noel shared it last week for affliction? Does anybody write that down? Anybody know it? Anybody got it? Flipsis is that word. Flipsis means to crush or to press or to compress or to squeeze. When you think affliction, you think about this process of crushing, squeezing, you are the olive, right? In this squeezing the life, the juice uh, out of the, and turning it into something that is life-giving, interestingly enough. Afflictions are weighty. They are heavy. You can feel this pressing, Right? There's a, a squeezing. Sometimes you can even feel it physically, like you just feel crushed, devastated. And as we work our way through, we just have four little verses here this morning uh, that Julie read there. Um, be thinking about what is it that weighs on you and those around you? Now, since this will be a focus for today and also during the entire series, I just did wanted to send a couple, share a couple thoughts about uh, affliction or thlipsis. Okay, first of all, not everything is an affliction. The fact that your football team missed the playoffs or they ran out of Stanley Cups at the target, those are not afflictions, right? That's just your problem, whatever, right? That's just, that's not what we're talking about here. Secondly, there are lots of different kinds of afflictions and different people are affected in different ways by similar experiences, right? Paul is gonna talk about his affliction seems to be like a literal threat to his life from people who hated the gospel. <laughs> um, divorce can be an affliction. Death and bereavement, sometimes it's physical health issues. There are financial trials. We got a prayer request this week from a, a woman who recently lost her job 
And it said, she's going through some pretty intense stress just thinking about her financial future and her situation. You can feel the weight. Could you please pray for me? This is heavy for me, right? Thirdly, there's no use comparing afflictions. Some may seem worse than others. Some probably are, humanly speaking, but they're all heavy. There's weight that we're bearing. And this will be a weighty message this morning. I might need a hug afterwards, but we will make it through this together, okay? Paul has been there. His own afflictions help him to identify with the afflictions that we face. And the things that help him navigate affliction are going to help us as well. He's gonna give us some practical advice that we'll look at here together. And we're gonna be starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 8, uh, which says this. We, this is Paul, Timothy, the, the, the saints that he's kind of writing on behalf of, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. And so there's that word, flipsis, right? In the previous verses, Paul had talked kind of generally about his gospel affliction, and now he's referring to a specific instance, something that took place in Asia. Asia uh, was sort of their, it's modern day Turkey and kind of that area was Asia back then. Something happened that Paul's referencing here. Now, scholars aren't sure which affliction Paul is referring to, but there are a lot of candidates Paul faced a lot of trials. In fact, later on in 2 Corinthians, and we're gonna hit this when we study chapter 11, that's gonna be like in May or something. Um, Paul goes on this sort of affliction rant, okay? For 10 verses, he talks about how for the sake of Christ, he had been beaten and stoned almost to death and flogged and he was shipwrecked. He describes eight different kinds of danger that he faced. He talked about there were times where he had no food, no water, he couldn't sleep. It's just like this, just on and on and on, all these different circumstances. And then he ends the rant by saying this. In verse 28 of chapter 11, he says, not to mention other things, there is daily pressure. You feel the weight there, the pressing. He's bearing this burden on me. My concern for all the churches. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of all the crazy hardships Paul faced, is it possible that the biggest weight he felt was his burden for the churches? Now, if you know Paul, this makes complete sense. In Paul's worldview, being shipwrecked or or beaten or starving, those are difficult hardships, but those are earthly things. Like in his mind, he's like, it's far worse just thinking about people dying without knowing Jesus Christ. Like that's eternal. That's so much more significant. Whatever specific affliction Paul is referring to here, his message is clear uh, to his brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth. Don't forget what we've endured for the gospel. We're with you. We understand affliction. Verse eight Uh, continues, he says, we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Have you been there? 
Maybe you're there right now, just overwhelmed, beyond your strength, despairing of life itself. I know I've been there. I know many of you have as well. In my Bible study group last week, we were studying this passage, and I received, while we were doing this, I received this text from a friend of mine, it's a Riverview guy, recently endured just the most terrible loss. Awful. And the text said, good morning, brother. I need prayers today. I can't stop thinking about my loss. I'm just so sad. Do you feel the weight? That's, that's lipsis, right? That's that pressing. It's just almost unbearable. My wife, Laura, has endured a ton of this kind of affliction. Um, when her parents divorced, her little 11-year-old heart just felt that burden. Um, when she was 20, her older brother, uh, his life ended uh, via suicide, and her whole family was just crushed. Um, her, her mom passed away 10 years ago here in December. Very terrible, but, but I will say, um, when our youngest son, Luke, was diagnosed and with terminal cancer eight years ago, and then he passed away two years later, uh, these verses, this is what Paul shared here, it says, we even despaired of life itself. That rings true for us. I remember about a year after Luke was diagnosed, it was in August, uh, the summer afterwards, I woke up in the middle of the night one night and I was screaming, I was terrified, sobbing, convinced I was going to die. I just don't think my mind and my body were prepared to handle the kind of trauma that we were enduring. Um, to this day, I'm still plagued by bouts of panicked fear, a persistent grief and sadness that just weighs on my heart, right? which I suppose will be the case as long as I'm on this side of eternity, which makes sense because my love for Luke was so great. The loss, it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't ever settle fully. My point is this, the weight of affliction is very real. Fear and anxiety and trauma and despair are real and often very debilitating and people work hard to try to present this sort of front-facing version of themselves where everything seems okay, but underneath, oftentimes these little micro outbursts of, you know, whatever it might have, it, it signals something that's going on deeper, right? And Paul can relate. He's experienced it. He's endured it. And now he addresses it. Verse nine again, he says, "'Indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death, so that, and there's the kind of pivot in the verse, right? We felt we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He, that's God, has delivered us from such a terrible death. And he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. Now, so often, and we don't really like to hear this, but so often it's through the depths of despair that we learn to not trust ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. 
which is, by the way, what we say we want, right? Isn't that our goal as followers of Jesus, to trust him? I wish I could just trust him more. I wish I had more faith. Don't we say we believe God is our only hope all the time, only he brings the dead to life. Don't we need him to save us every single minute of every single day? Oftentimes, affliction is that doorway to deeper faith in Jesus. It feels a little bit like, you know those user agreements that pop up when you subscribe to like Spotify or something and there's like a scroll that's like, "Mm," and you never read it. You just check the little box at the bottom, right? Yeah, I just wanna start enjoying the music, right? When we're often offered the opportunity to deepen our trust in God, of course we click the, I agree, right? I'm gonna agree to that. But then later on, we're like, I did not read the fine print on that. (laughs) And it says clearly, the joy that you seek will necessarily come through suffering. And I might not have clicked that box if I'd have known. I might not have been so quick to commit if I'd have read the fine print. About 10 years ago, Pastor and author Tim Keller came out with this book. It was called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Just a light weekend read, you know? (laughs) But then in recent years, Tim Keller actually did walk with God through pain and suffering. He endured a very terrible and difficult battle with cancer, and then he passed away um, just last year in, in, in May. I'm gonna share two quotes from his book. And by the way, I've recently been um, cleaning out my office a little bit. I have several extra copies of this book. So if it interests you, I left them at the Info Center. They're free if you wanna grab one at no cost, if if it kind of resonates with you. Here's his first quote. Christianity teaches that contra fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. You don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And so I'm eight and a half years into my journey with intense affliction, and I'm honestly shocked at how much God has changed me. Uh, My trust in God has grown immensely because it's had to. Uh, My wife and I are, are closer than we've ever been as we've navigated grief and loss together. I think um, we just have so much empathy for one another that there's this unique uh, sweetness to the grace that exists between us. Um, I'm more convinced than ever that the suffering of this present life is not worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed to us. Um, I've seen God be faithful. My trust in him has grown. All that is true. And the weight of Luke's loss is still barely tolerable. And I'd trade all of those things to have him back today. I never would have signed that user agreement. No way I would have signed up for that, right? Absolutely. See, suffering and affliction, they're they're not binary. There's a spectrum. There's paradox and mystery and faith. And so much of it is way above our pay grade. 
God's ways are just not our ways. And ultimately what God asks of us is will you trust me rather than yourself? And that is so hard. Amen? Now here's how Paul finishes our little section for today. In verse 10, he says, we have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you, now he's talking about the saints in Corinth, while you join us in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. And so to address the heavy weight of affliction, Paul uh, describes two action steps that are so simple and obvious, it's almost like maddening, right? Because they're so challenging. You ready for the two things he, he says that we should do? Hope in Jesus, ask for prayer. That's what Paul says. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Remembering the promises of Jesus and prayer helps a ton, right? Laura and I have experienced both of these things. In the weeks and months after Luke's diagnosis, we received hundreds of texts and emails and handwritten notes and I have this gigantic basket of these at home that, I'll, that like never am I ever gonna get rid of. And it was, hey, we're praying for you. We're, we're thinking about you. If there's anything you need, please don't hesitate to ask. And can I tell you something? Paul was right. Prayer helped the community of saints helped by praying. Now, what can we remember? What can we do as we reflect on these passages? And again, maybe this would be a good place to use your journal for some notes here. Here's a couple thoughts. Number one, we will face affliction. Here's a, the second Tim Keller quote I wanted to share with you. He says, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful in our career, something will inevitably ruin it. Isn't that true? It's coming. And when the time comes, I would add to his quote, the biggest question you will face is, will I choose to trust in myself or trust in the Lord? who conquered death, and who in Christ has promised to deliver me from the dead. So that's number one, we will face affliction. Number two, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are obligated to support one another through affliction. And I use that word obligated, I was like, is that the right word? I think that's the right word. Not all of us can support every one of us, but collectively, as a community of faith, it's part of who we need to be. And it begins with the gift of giving and receiving prayer. When I received that text from my friend about how heavy his grief had become, the first thing I thought about was, it had just been a few days earlier that uh, one of our Riverview members had come 
uh, arrived at church and it was the first time he had come to a weekend service since his wife had passed away. Just recently that had happened. And he was so overwhelmed when he walked in the door, he just broke down and he was just sobbing. He couldn't even participate in the weekend service and we kind of found a little spot for him and just to care for him. And it had been my friend, the one who had sent the text about his own sadness, who said, I'll go sit with him and pray with him and listen throughout the whole weekend service, right? That's what we do as a family. In fact, let's take a moment to do that right now. Um, I want you to just think about whether it's you that's going through something or the person next to you or somebody that you know. Let's just take, you know, 20 to 30 seconds just to have a time of silent prayer um, for the folks who are afflicted in our community. And then, and then we'll, we'll move forward here. Amen. Now these Bible passages from the first part of 2 Corinthians, they may have brought to the surface for you your need for some care or prayer support or your desire to provide some care for others. Um, If that's the case, I would encourage you to stop by our info center uh, or come find me or Alex or or one of our ministers. Um, We have some folks back there with prayer lanyards. We'd love to pray for you or with you. We'd love to get you connected into our side-by-side or one of our other care ministries uh, here at Riverview. Um, We will face affliction. That's one. We're obligated to support our brothers and sisters in Christ through affliction. That's uh, affliction. That's two. And then thirdly, we remember, like Paul said here, that our only hope is Jesus Christ who will deliver us again into an eternal, affliction-free life, right? That's the glorious, eternal future that awaits. Now, let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Just want you to picture it, this giant hillside. It's covered with olive trees. It's peaceful. Across the valley, there's the temple there, the chaotic buzz of the temple as the Passover approaches. Just hundreds of thousands of people just, just nearby there. And you found this peaceful place of refuge in this garden that on a cool night, you're breathing in the fresh air. Matthew 26, verse 36 says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Does it sound familiar? Jesus is sorrowful. He's troubled. He says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Very similar to the words Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. That's, that's that weight. He's, he's, uh, the burden that he is about to bear is 
almost too much from him. In the garden of oil press, the Son of God is pressed and squeezed. In fact, Luke tells us uh, in his gospel, the stress and anxiety was so great that Jesus actually sweat drops of blood, right? And then the tearful Jesus falls on his face and prays. He asks God, this is so powerful, is there any other possible way? Dad, can this cup pass from me? And yet, Jesus says, I'm gonna trust you. Do as you will. I'll trust you, Father. And then shouts and flashes of fire and people running and pushing their way forward and just without warning, this crowd surrounds Jesus. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived a large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and the elders of the people. The betrayer had given them a sign, the one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, why have you come? And they came up and took hold of Jesus and arrested him, and you're maybe familiar with the rest of the story, but it bears repeating. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, squeezed and pressed, and then arrested in the garden of the oil press, was then crushed on our behalf. He endured the most horrible affliction, betrayal, physical torture, humiliation, injustice, and ultimately, death on the cross. And in doing so, he became everything for us that the oil of the olive was to them, the healer, the bread of life, the light of the world, the anointed one, the embodiment of life itself. It's really the greatest of paradoxes that the suffering and affliction of Jesus are at the very heartbeat of the gospel, right? If Jesus doesn't suffer and die on the cross, sin isn't defeated, death isn't conquered, eternal life isn't uh, secured for those who trust him. We don't have an opportunity to become cruciformed in the way we live. And all of this was part of God's sovereign and perfect plan for his son to suffer on our behalf. And the question we always come down to is, do you trust him? The prophets said it was gonna happen that way. I wanna close with one final verse. This is in Isaiah chapter 53. This is a verse about Jesus, but it was written over 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And it just shows that this was God's design all along for suffering and affliction to be part of his redemptive plan. So we'll end with this. This is Isaiah 53 verse four. It says, yet he himself, it's Jesus, bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went away 
like astray like sheep, we all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Jesus, our Savior and our example, willfully allowed himself to be crushed because of our sin and then conquered death so that we could live forever. Let's trust him and then go live the same sacrificial way in front of others so they can have the opportunity to trust him as well and find the hope that we have through him. Let's pray. Lord, we are just eternally grateful, and I mean that literally, um, for the work of your son Jesus on the cross on our behalf. Um, uh, We wanna take seriously Um, the many afflictions that we face as individuals and as a community of believers here, um, they are heavy, uh, they are painful, uh, they leave scars, we we just feel overwhelmed. Just everything that we've talked about this morning, help us um, to um, take those difficulties uh, and trust you in the midst of them, even when we don't understand and then uh, to express uh, to the world the hope that we have in you in spite of some of the things that, that weigh us down, Lord. We just help us to kind of navigate that tension together as a community and to care for one another well in the midst of our inflection, afflictions. In Jesus' name, amen.